Hey, good morning. Uh, let's go to John chapter 20. We're going to be reading from verse 19 through to the end of the chapter, but before we do, uh, let me catch you up and, and tell you where we are in the story. When we come into this chapter, this verse, it's Sunday evening, Easter Sunday evening. Jesus is alive. He is risen. And so far, there's very few people that are happy about that. Um, so far, only Mary Magdalene in our story has seen him. Uh, but a few others have seen the evidence. Peter and John saw the empty tomb. And even this was enough for John to say, I believe. Uh, but afterwards, Peter and John went home. And we'll see in this chapter, they lock the doors behind them and they hide. They're still scared. Um, Mary stayed late. You've got to stay late for the good stuff. That's what we saw last week. She waited it out and, and then got a, a personal experience with Jesus that was special. This is what John wanted us to focus on in his uh, account of the resurrection. He wanted us to focus in on Mary and that tender personal encounter that she had with Jesus. Well, now he's shifting the focus onto the disciples in verse 19. So I'll read this chapter. Uh, you can follow along in your own Bibles if you would like. Verse 19 of John chapter 20 says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, you have given us these words that we might believe. So now we look to you in the eyes of faith. Um, we haven't seen you with these eyes but we put all our hope there where, where Job had his hope where he said, with my eyes I will see God. And we, we hope with John who wrote, when we see you, we'll be like you. We'll, we'll see you as you are and know even as we also are known. Bless our understanding of this passage. I pray that you would uh, till the soil of our hearts so that the seed can, can take root and bear fruit. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, this is this is a strange Easter. Uh, you know, every year we we 
celebrate Easter, we celebrate resurrection, and we celebrate it in the morning, early and then a little bit later in the morning, and we, we kind of finish up with, with Jesus is alive, and and really that's everything. Without that, everything is hopeless. With it, we, we have hope, and Jesus is alive. He's alive, he's risen, and then you say he is risen indeed, and it's, it's beautiful and it's wonderful. That is not how Easter went. Uh, Easter morning came and went, and the disciples are huddled in a dark room with the doors locked, wondering if someone is going to come and kill them. Uh, it's, it's not how you've done Easter dinner, I hope. But in verse 19, we do see that the first day of the week, the same day, that the disciples were assembled. Um, they, were, they were together for fear of the Jews. Um, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, peace with you, which is definitely what they need. Now, in some manuscripts, it drops the word assembled. I like that uh, the Textus Receptus has it. I like that New King James has that word assembled. And, and even without the, the specific word, we do know that they were all together in one room except Thomas, but we'll get to that. And this is a good thing. This is a good thing that they were all together. Last week, remember, I mentioned that Peter and John were together on that morning when Mary came to them with her testimony. And now, even though Peter had failed spectacularly, he had failed in just some really incredible ways, uh, John didn't, didn't draw away from him, and, and, and Peter did not isolate himself from community. And, and now, as these disciples, these, these co-failures... Um, have had a, a hard weekend, just to offer an understatement. They're still together. These disciples are all failures together, but they are together. And, and this is good. Being together is the right thing for disciples. It is still God's will for his disciples to be together with other disciples. Physically actually together. Not just when they are afraid, but perhaps especially when they were afraid. And you'll actually see that Thomas, who is not together with them in this one episode, and we'll explain that in a second, he really loses out, doesn't he? By not being assembled with the gathered, fearful failures of disciples, Thomas misses out. Because Jesus is known in the community of the disciples. So, um, Thomas, who is not together with them in this episode, loses out. And, and remember, Thomas forever gets an insulting nickname because of what he missed out on. So don't stay away from the assembling together of the disciples for too long. We might give you a nickname that you don't like. I think that's the proper application. I'll have to consult the commentaries on that. Actually, it seems very likely. Let's bring it back a little bit. Thomas was there um, and had only briefly stepped out of the room for one reason or another uh, by the time we get to verse 24. Uh, you see this when you compare the other Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, we read of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, at this time in John, Mary is the only eyewitness of the resurrected Lord uh, in all reality, there was also these two disciples from Emmaus that Luke includes that John leaves out. Remember, they were walking along. They didn't realize it was Jesus they were talking to. He shared the very best Bible study ever not recorded. And, and then when they go and eat together, he is revealed to them in the breaking of bread. And I love that. Well, after this, those two disciples, Luke says, they rush off to Jerusalem. It says that they came and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered 
together. Luke 24, verse 33. So we get the, the truth that they were assembled together, and we see that all 11 of them were there in this room. And then we have Luke's account of this same event when Jesus comes and talks with them. So Thomas was there, but he, he had an errand to run or something or stepped out at the most inopportune moment. There are all, uh, all the other disciples here, the two from the road to Emmaus, uh, just as those who were with them, probably the Marys and the other women. They're all in this room together. This is important to note because Jesus is about to give these people some really cool gifts. He is going to give these people in this room authority, and he is going to commission them in a very remarkable way. And it is important to note that the blessings that are coming down the line in a few verses are not just for the apostles or for the church leadership or something like that, but actually for all disciples, all believers. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The disciples are assembled. That's a good thing. The doors are locked and they are scared. That's less of a good thing, isn't it? Um, this shows how, how scared they are um, and, and it shows how, how desperate they were. I mean, if they really thought the Jews were going to come and kill them, they could have surrounded the house. I don't know how much you know good the locked door would have really done. Um, but they're, they're scared and they, they're, they're panicking. Fortunately, locked doors don't keep Jesus out. Let's read verse 19 again. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Um, this is the first of two times in this passage where Jesus walks through walls, I guess. Uh, he, he teleports. He just materializes there. Something I don't know. I don't know what else to call it. I don't know how to describe this. I don't think we could describe this really well, but it freaks them out. That is for sure. Uh, it's so weird that they think he's something other than human, a ghost or something. Jesus assures them that he is not a ghost, but in his resurrected body, uh, there were physical properties that did not exist in the pre-resurrected body. The way a resurrected body interacts with the material world is not the same way our bodies now interact with our material world. But it, this is cool. Uh, it's cool because we are going to get resurrected bodies. Naturally, there's been a lot of speculation. That's the only thing we're left with is speculation as to what this is going to be like. Um, we read that we will be like him for we shall see him as he is, but what in the world could that possibly mean? Uh, we're, you know, people are attracted to these, well, I guess we're attracted to the idea of special powers, right? Walking through walls, flying, all the superhero stuff. Um, and I think of C.S. Lewis writing about how, um, how people are uncomfortable in time, how time is not something we've ever really gotten a hold of where we were used to it. You know, time goes by too fast. You, you spend a lifetime on the earth and you think, where did the time go? Or you try and get out of the house on time in the mornings and you say, where did the time go? Uh, we're just uncomfortable in time. And he, he, he says that this may be an indication that we were indeed made for something outside of time. Maybe we're made for an eternal state. Now, there are a lot of people um, that a lot of things, sorry, that people want that we just can't have in this life. And it makes you wonder if those itches are features rather than bugs. Um, if your dreams of flying 
are, are maybe just bits of anticipation for what's coming, looking forward to resurrection. You know, I, I do know this, Jesus has all the good stuff waiting for you. Uh, all the things that you haven't been satisfied for in this life, find their satisfaction in him. Um, and, and heaven, you know, he's preparing a place for you, and heaven is going to be way cooler than just walking through walls. Though I hope there's walking through walls too. Look at what the resurrected Jesus does now. He walks into the room, and we, we learn, like I mentioned, from the other Gospels, and when he says, look at my wounds, that he, he, he proves to them it's really him, because there's still a little bit of doubt. But at this point in time, all authority has been given to him. He has defeated every enemy, even death. He is capable of literally anything and everything. So with that power, what does he do? He goes to the weak, and he brings comfort. He gives assurance. He says, it's me. I'm here. I'm not gone. I'm not fake. I'm real. He says, peace to you. In verse, um, well, we'll get to verse 20 in a second, actually. He came and stood in their midst and says to them, peace with you. Uh, he came to reveal himself to them. This, of course, is exactly what they needed. They were afraid. They were Their faith was weak. What did they need? It would be logical to say that they were uh, afraid because they needed courage, um, and that they were doubting because they needed confidence um, and faith. But, but the more full answer, their deeper need, was of course their need for Jesus himself. We need Jesus. That's what Jesus offers. He offers himself, not just his gifts. We need him in our lives, our relationships, in every area of our life, whether we think it's an area we're successful in or one we're failing in. We need Jesus. And Jesus is eager to come and be what we need. So Jesus comes and he stands in the midst of them, visible, where all can see him. He's right there with them, not up on a stage, apart, or glowing. He's with them. And he says, peace be with you. Shalom. Shalom was a common greeting, usually nothing more than a hello. But as you should know by now, as you know, with Jesus taking common things and then elevating them to the supernatural is sort of his main thing. Jesus doesn't just say, hi. This is the God who spoke the universe into existence, who said, let there be light. And then there was light and there still is. This is the man from Nazareth who calmed the wind and the waves with this same word. Peace, be still. So when he says peace, he is doing more than, you know, some simple well-wishing. He's doing more than saying hi. He is creating peace ex nihilo. He is making peace, which of course is something that Jesus is really into. The resurrected Jesus gives peace like no one else can. In our sinful state, we can never be at peace, and we can never have peace with God, but Jesus has done away with our sins, so he can say, peace. And the disciples receive it in verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. It says they were glad. Well, of course they were. Jesus is alive. This simple fact was enough to sustain each one of these people all the way to the end of their lives. But it's interesting that in this verse, the gladness is connected with the wounds of Christ. 
Jesus is showing them his hands and his side in order to prove it's really me. I'm not a ghost or a Jesus impersonator. The, the marks of crucifixion are here, but there's something deeper. There is a lesson. There is gladness to be had for the disciples of Christ, for us, when we consider the wounds of Jesus. Now remember, we will be considering these wounds even in heaven, even in a sinless state. The Lamb appears in Revelation as a Lamb slain. The marks of death are for us to behold. How? How can it be, you might ask, that there's gladness in looking at open wounds and scars and mutilated flesh? Because it is by His stripes that we are healed. It is in Christ's sufferings, more than his sermon, more than his sermons, excuse me, where we see the love of God for us. As disciples of Jesus, we rejoice in his wounds because we know that his wounds bless us and show his kindness to us. We look to the cross and consider Christ's crucifixion because it is there where we see the extent of God's love for us. So Jesus, he gives his disciples assurance that it's really him, and he gives them peace and he gives them gladness and the way he gives them gladness is by showing them his wounds that's not all he gives that wait there's more jesus gives them a job to do so jesus said to them again peace to you as the father has sent me i also send you this is the same sort of formula we saw last week with mary magdalene you remember Mary Magdalene is at the tomb, afraid and confused, and Jesus speaks peace to her. He speaks her name, and in that moment she knows her shepherd. And she clings to Jesus, who almost immediately sends her away. Not unlovingly, not with any harshness, but he sets up this formula that has been followed ever since. He gives his people his presence, liberally and without reproach, and, his, and he gives his peace. And in that moment, he sends them out to spread all that peace around. Now, this is the first time any of the original twelve had seen Jesus after his crucifixion, or perhaps even since the garden when they abandoned him. Some of them. They're glad to see him, but you know they've got questions. You know that they would wish to spend a long evening figuring out all the details, but the first thing Jesus says is, I'm sending you. We've got work to do. Now, John mentions in his little postscript there in 30 that, like, hey, you know, he did a lot of other things with the disciples too. It wasn't just this. But this is what I'm writing that you may believe. Now, the, when, the, when Jesus immediately commissions these disciples before answering all their questions, we see something that is still true of his relationship with his children. We see that the sending is said and done in conjunction with his presence and his peace, and as we'll see, his spirit. But you can't miss how formative this event is in the life of the disciples. Being sent is what it means to know the resurrected Christ. That's what John is writing. When they see Jesus, or go back, think of Mary. When Mary sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, Jesus says, go and tell people about me. Now, in, in his life, people would come and, and for healing, and he would say, don't tell anyone. It's not time yet. Well, guess what? He's raised from the dead, and now it's time. So Mary comes and clings to him, and he says, go tell people. And then now Jesus walks in through the walls, however he did that, 
and and they they realize that it's Jesus, and then he says, "I'm sending you, go." Uh, again, it's 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 a formula that's played out many other times. Think of the uh, the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus. You know, Christ encounters him, and then they don't sit down to have a Bible study. Saul was told, "Go to this place, to this person, and do this thing." I've appointed you to preach. To encounter the resurrected Lord is to be sent and commissioned. Christians are people who have had this encounter by faith. And there are no non-commissioned Christians. You have been sent. This is the disciples at this point already had some experience with this, of course. Jesus had sent them to preach and to heal and to cast out demons, and he said, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Now he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. He prayed the same thing in John 17, verse 18. I'll read it for you, John 17, 18. He says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. In Latin, the word for sent in that verse is, is misit, and it is where we get our English word missionary. As disciples who have had a personal encounter with the resurrected Lord, we have been commissioned, missioned, sent as missionaries. We are sent like Jesus was sent. How is that? What does that mean? Well, think of what it doesn't mean. Jesus was not sent to conquer or overtake. He was not sent primarily to be a culture warrior and change the culture to petition Rome or the Sanhedrin about all their evils and injustices. He was not sent to answer all your questions. He was not sent to teach you valuable life skills. Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost. And he came to lay down his life, to sacrifice his life as a ransom for many. That's how he was sent. He came preaching the gospel. And he came for souls. We don't have to guess what we were sent to do. We can look to Jesus and hear his words. In what is called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, this is what you're sent for. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And even in that passage, we see the same thing we see in John, the connection between the presence and peace of Christ and the work that he has for us, because he continues in Matthew 28, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus, who has tabernacled with us, as John 1 says, he has dwelt among us, who is among us, sends us, and yet he goes with us. He says, go, and he also says, I'm with you when you go. In ascending to heaven, it appears that he leaves us, but he has promised, I will not leave you orphans. And one mysterious way in which this, this truth becomes reality is through the Holy Spirit. So in verse 22, he says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave the disciples the Holy Spirit. Now this language here in verse 22 is uh, borrowed uh, from Genesis chapter 2. It, it echoes Genesis chapter 2. And this shouldn't be a, a surprise from John, who of course borrowed heavily from Genesis chapter 1 at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then John updates that, and uh, he uh, 
the new and improved version in John chapter 1 verse 1 is, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Genesis 2, God forms man out of the dust of the ground. It's a humble place, to be sure. It's a lowly place, just dirt. And then breathes, breathes the breath of life into him. And man becomes a living being. Adam couldn't do anything until God made him Adam. Adam couldn't do anything until God made him alive, until God made him live. The disciples could not do anything. They could not be sent until Jesus gave them resurrection life, spiritual life. Just as God breathed life into Adam and changed him from a dead sculpture of mud into a human being, body, mind, and soul. So now, Jesus encounters the humble disciples and gives them new life, new birth. I believe that it is this moment in John chapter 20, 20? Yeah, John chapter 20, where the disciples were born again. This is, this is where they are regenerated, where they are made new. This is where we would call them Christians. You know, John uh, writes about the new birth more than the other gospel writers. In, in John chapter 3, this conversation with Nicodemus, he says you must be born of the Spirit. And the word for spirit and breath are the same. And Jesus breathes on them and gives them holy breath, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. In John chapter 7, verse 39, John had said, The Holy Spirit was not yet given, in chapter 7, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, guess what? That time is over. Jesus is glorified, and the Spirit is now here. Jesus gives the disciples new life, new birth. And you may be thinking, you probably should be thinking, wait a second, I thought Acts chapter 2 was when they received the Holy Spirit. This is cause for some confusion. In Acts chapter 1, after the events of John 20, Jesus tells the disciples, in so many words, don't do anything until you receive the promise from the Father. Go to Jerusalem and wait until you receive power from on high. And they do. And the Spirit of God delivers. And on Pentecost, you have the birth of the church. The Spirit falls on those in the upper room. Preaching happens. Conversions happen. Baptisms happen. People get saved. Church is born. These are two separate events with two different functions and two different meanings. Uh, we've talked about this in John before, but the quick version is this. The Spirit of God has different ministries. He comes alongside people and convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 14, 17, Jesus tells the disciples in the upper room, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That was in the upper room. The Spirit was with the disciples. Now Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit. I believe that they did. And the Holy Spirit is now in them. This promise will be in you is fulfilled in John chapter 20. The Spirit comes into the person at the moment of salvation. It is true that you cannot be saved without this new birth of the Spirit. You cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. And it is true that every single person who has been saved has received the Holy Spirit. You must not think of the Holy Spirit as a secondary or optional member of the Godhead left for Pentecostals or something like that. Jesus tells us he will be in you and this is the new birth. But then he tells these men he will also come 
upon you, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And throughout Acts, we see occasions of this happening. Of course, on Pentecost, most clearly, we see Christians, believers, they're definitely saved. Christ has died, was buried, rose again, and ascended on high, and these people believed in him. They're Christians. They're saved. They had received the Holy Spirit when he breathed on them in this upper room. But they still wait for a filling of the Holy Spirit. When throughout the book of Acts, we see uh, disciples, uh, apostles, those who are certainly Christians, again and again, be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll read things like Peter being filled with the Holy Spirit preached. Or, and then this disciple, then he was filled with the Holy Spirit for purposes of, min of ministry, for the purpose of being witnesses of Jesus. God just keeps on giving and giving, doesn't he? You know, we have lots of already not yets in the Bible uh, in, in regards to our salvation. You know, we are sanctified. We are being sanctified. We are saved. We are being saved. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you if you have believed in Jesus Christ with the forgiveness of your sins. The Holy Spirit is in you. And you can still ask our generous God who gives abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask, think, or imagine. You can still ask Him, the one who has sent His Spirit in you, the God who is in you, of whom you are a temple. You can ask Him, fill me up. More, Lord. More, Lord. And that's not saying that He's holding back. And it's not saying that your salvation was not sufficient. You have all things needed for life, uh, for life and godliness. Okay? You have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. But you can still ask God, fill me up with your spirit so that I can receive power to be your witness. Jesus gives new life, new birth by way of breathing fresh air, the fresh Holy Spirit into our very souls. And then he doesn't stop giving. This blessing is immeasurable, um, and it comes with quite a lot of responsibility, as most blessings do. The next verse, verse 23, Jesus says this, right on the heels of breathing on them and having them receive the Holy Spirit, he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now that, that sounds kind of heavy, doesn't it? Does this mean that you, as a spirit-filled Christian, get to arbitrarily decide who is forgiven and who is not? It cannot possibly mean that. Now, at the time of Martin Luther, that was pretty much how this was understood, actually. That the church, which meant the Pope uh, in all actuality, could just decide who to let in, who to let out, which souls get to go to heaven, and which ones get to stay in, in purgatory. Um, and Luther's argument against this, it's, it's one of the 95 theses that he nailed on the, Wittenberg, the door of Wittenberg Chapel. While he's still a monk, his argument against this was, was a pretty, pretty airtight, one of his best, actually. Basically, his argument with the Pope was this. He says, if you can just send people to heaven, you should do that. You should probably just do that. It would be best. Don't you think? And I agree. If the authority, if the complete authority was given to the disciples to forgive sins of anyone that they, that, you know, they want, 
then they should have just done it right then. Poof, everyone's forgiven. But of course, that is not the gospel that they were entrusted with. And that, that was not just what they were commissioned to do. They were told to preach the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. And then when people ask Peter on Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? He doesn't say, well, nothing. God says I can forgive your sins, so I'm just going to do it right now. He tells them, believe and be baptized. So when you start to think like, um, you know, there's, there's one verse and it just doesn't really make sense with the rest of the Bible, then go to the rest of the Bible and let the rest of Scripture uh, influence your understanding of the hard-to-understand verses. When, when you realize this verse is an outlier, that it's an odd one out, um, it, you see that it must be held up and explained by other more clear passages. And this is how you've always got to do it. Um, the one verse that is questionable must be interpreted in light of the passages that are clear. So what does Jesus mean here? What is clear here and elsewhere in Scripture? What is clear in Scripture is that God forgives sins through Jesus. That's beautiful. What is clear in Scripture is that if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. So what authority did Jesus actually give to the disciples right now? The authority to preach this reality. You can say to a person who has confessed and believed, your sins are forgiven. You can say that. You can tell the unrepentant, your sins need to be forgiven. This is an example of God who is all-sufficient, inviting co-laborers into his work, inviting us to be about our Father's business. Of course he gets the final word, but he allows us to say his word. You can say with authority, by the blood of Jesus, your sins are forgiven if you believe and confess. You can say that because you believe in the efficacy of the cross and the truth of the word of God, which says, if you confess, he forgives. This is the message the disciples and you have been entrusted with. We also have the authority to call sin what it is. Jesus says if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, obviously, this wasn't meant to be a punitive kind of authority saying like, oh, we're, we just really don't like that guy and we're just not going to forgive him or anything like that. They, this, this authority is supposed to function within the context of the full gospel. But we do have authority to see sins as sins, to recognize bad fruit on a bad tree. Now, these disciples are receiving the Holy Spirit, and it's necessary if you're going to make these kinds of calls, and if you're going to preach this message with power, you need the Holy Spirit. Now, all these men are, are receiving this um, men and women in this room are receiving this authority, they're receiving the Holy Spirit, unless they happened to be out of the room at the time and they missed the whole thing, like Thomas. Poor guy, right? Poor guy. Verse 24 says, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. And he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, I just mentioned at the beginning the importance of assembling. Look at what you miss when you're out of the room. Now, Thomas didn't see Jesus, and when they say that they had seen Jesus, he doesn't believe. And actually, it's worse. It's really worse than that. He says he won't believe. 
not without a very specific set of evidence. Now, I think the beautiful part of this whole story, the point of this story, and the part that you ought to focus on more than on anything else, is, is not Thomas's doubt, which is not uncommon or extraordinary in any way. We're all doubters, really. We're a world full of doubters. But here's the important stuff. Christ gives the doubter exactly what he's looking for. How gracious and merciful our Lord is that when Thomas throws up this, this somewhat entitled claim that says, God owes me an explanation. You know, this idea that Jesus has to prove himself to us. Jesus says, okay, okay, I'll show you. Not only will I show you, but I'll let you touch with your own hands. And Jesus will address the doubt and will let him. Doubt isn't a good thing. But let's not miss this. Jesus is way too strong to feel threatened by your doubts. He is willing to engage with you in your doubts. That's not to say you should be like Thomas. Don't be. Or that you should hide behind every objection you can come up with. But it is saying this. If you've got problems with some stuff about God, he wants to talk to you about it. I love that Thomas puts out this big if, you know, if I saw his wounds and put my hand in his side, well, then, then and only then, I might believe. You know, th there's another if in the gospel that gives me a lot of hope. And John includes that in 1 John. Uh, I think you'll like this if better. In, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is our advocate, and he is Thomas's. In verse 26, it says, And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. A lot going on here, and it's really cool. This is the third time that Jesus had said, Peace to you. He said it first to the fearful in the room, and they were glad to see him. And then he said it again when he sent them to work. He gives peace to be commissioned. And here he gives peace to the doubter. He gives Thomas a whole replay because he missed the walk through the walls trick the first time, so Jesus does it again. But this is important. Jesus tells Thomas to touch his wounds. That's a weird thing to invite someone to do, don't you think? But it's exactly what Thomas had said he would require in order to believe. So Jesus is not only proving to Thomas, yes, I was crucified, and yes, I am indeed alive, and yes, it's really me, but also, Thomas, I heard everything that you were saying when you were talking about me. It's kind of the, like the, the miracle that brought Nathaniel into faith under the fig tree. Jesus being aware of your state, even when you're not so sure about his. Jesus invites examination. He invites Thomas to examine. There are countless testimonies of saints in the church, people who doubted and sought, and God graciously yielded to their examination. Did he have to? No. Was it better to take God at his word and not doubt? Yes, Jesus says it is. But Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, who seeks out the one lost sheep, comes to the doubter and says, as God does in Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. 
Christ welcomes you even when you have been unwelcoming. Even when you feel unwelcomed, Christ welcomes you. And Jesus says, here I am, and I'll give you the things you think you need. Now, do you really think he touched his side? Do you think Thomas did? This is sort of funny because the text doesn't say, and different people have different ideas. You know, did he actually put his fingers in the wounds? I don't know. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. Because Thomas thought that that's what it would take to get him believed. But when Jesus comes and encounters him and says peace and creates peace out of nothing and says, Thomas, be believing, I think that was enough. <laughs> having, having seen Jesus, having heard him, having been welcomed with this kind of awareness that Jesus was there the whole time, Jesus heard his doubt even when he didn't see Jesus. He knows now who he's dealing with. Verse 28, Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is a rebuke and something encouraging for us. There's a blessing for you having not seen, but believed. This is Thomas's confession of faith, though. My Lord and my God. He calls Jesus his Lord and he calls Jesus God. This really is the simplest way to understand what is going on. Thomas isn't praying to the Father here. He's not letting out an exclamation. He is confessing to Jesus that Jesus is his Lord and his God. Now, Thomas has forever been slapped with this unflattering nickname, Doubting Thomas. But when Jesus showed him his wounds, he believed when Jesus showed his wounds to the others, they were glad. When Thomas saw the wounds, he confessed the deity of Christ. I would, I would encourage here, meditate on the crucified Christ. When Paul preaches to the Corinthians, he says right up front, this is foolishness to the Greeks. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, but it is literally the only thing I want to talk about. That's a paraphrase, of course. Meaning this offends pretty much everyone. The cross offends everyone. But he says, I... He was diligent to present nothing but Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 1. The wounds of Christ are for us strange gladness. The wounds of Christ, when considered by us, build our faith. Both for the same reason. The wounds of Christ show us the extent which God has gone to save us, to show his love to us, to bring us to himself. You cannot include the gospel of God loves you without the message Christ died for you. There is power in the blood, wonder-working power. When you doubt, look at the wounds. When you are despairing, remember the sufferings of Christ. In his victory over death, Jesus kept the scars. You think he needed to? No. Do you think that he did it for his own benefit because he liked the decorative effect of the wounds? No. He kept the scars even after his resurrection to show them to you because there is spiritual richness in the sufferings of Christ. Now this little postscript here at the end, um, verse 30 and 31, it kind of feels like it's the end of the book and then chapter 21 is just a different story. And I don't know, I don't know exactly how it was arranged when, you know, on John's desk when he was writing it. But, but these last two verses, I believe, have been read um, carelessly, if not incorrectly. So let, let, let's read these. It says, Then, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, we, re we usually read that and come away, wow, Jesus did a whole lot more. And, you know, at the end later, he's saying, you know, if there was a whole, uh, in verse 25 of the next chapter, it says, you know, all the libraries in the world wouldn't hold the books that recorded all the things Jesus did. And the way we leave that is just thinking, I wish I could have known all those other things. But verse 31 shows that that is definitely not the point you're supposed to take away. Verse 31 shows John's point. Yes, there's a lot of other things, but I, John, include the things that will build your faith. So focus on these things. You know, verse 31 says, but these are written that you may believe. Yes, he did a lot of other stuff, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is his point. This is why we go to the word faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. And we know our faith is weak, it's unformed, and we need, uh, we are in need of help. But these are the things that are written that will give us that help, build our faith. We have this to build our faith, an invitation from Jesus to consider his wounds, consider the marks of crucifixion, consider the great love with which Christ has loved us. There will always be things vying for your attention, always things to worry about, always reasons to doubt. Always things you could be afraid of. But these things are written that you may believe. And we're left with Christ's words to Thomas. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Have faith. Put your faith in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, strengthen us by this word. Strengthen us. Let it be food indeed. And let this word dwell richly in our hearts. Let our minds be filled with these contemplations of the wounds of Christ. And let your presence, God, give us peace, give us our marching orders, give us the courage to obey you. And let this, these considerations give us faith where our faith is weak. We pray these things so that you can build your church into the church that you want it to be. In Jesus' name, amen.